Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 12th, 2022. Uh, dates, of course, have all sorts of symbolism. When one thinks of September 12th, one thinks of the day before, September 11th, which has entered a particular symbolic significance for the United States. Uh, lots of shows yesterday on Sunday about September 11th, memorializing it, and uh, the Senate Intelligence Chief, uh, Mark Warner, connected September 11th with another symbolic moment on the American calendar, uh, January 6th, suggesting that, um, and I'm quoting him here, over 20 years uh, after, tw uh, for more than 20 years after September 11th, uh, attacks on the symbol of democracy are not coming from terrorists, supposedly Al-Qaeda, which was responsible for the attacks of 9-11, but from insurgents uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Warner said this on Face the Nation yesterday. Very intriguing idea that uh, the biggest danger to American democracy now are Americans, or a minority at least, of Americans themselves. It's particularly ironic given in at January 6th, uh, there were lots of American flags. In fact, that was the symbolism, the supposed uh, celebration of what January 6th uh, was all about. Not everyone agrees. Donald Trump, of course, has promised uh, if he gets reelected that he will pardon those who have been imprisoned or punished for their involvement in January 6th. And some of the GOP senators, including Lindsey Graham, has pushed back, which is pretty amazing because Graham generally doesn't push back on anything that Trump does. Uh, January 6th then remains incredibly controversial um, in American uh, mythology. One man who was there uh, is my guest today, uh, Luke Mogelson. Uh, is a very distinguished New Yorker writer uh, and the author of a new book, um, The Storm Is Here, which was based on his involvement, not quite literally involvement, but he was so to speak, embedded in January 6th. And I'm thrilled that Luke is joining us from Marseille. Long way, Luke, from uh, January 6th to Marseille. How does it feel in Marseille being so separate from the storm that you suggest has arrived on the American soil? Uh, well, it feels hot. It's quite hot here. Um, but I'm planning it's on coming. It's probably pretty hot in Washington D.C. right now, too. Yeah, yeah. I guess I can't complain, but um, I'm I'm hoping to come back for the midterms. Um, so I, I come and go uh, in the U.S. these days. What do you make of um, the fact that so many of the flags, uh, Luke, uh, on January 6th, were of the American flag? The people involved were so supposedly, at least according to them, protecting the republic. Uh, do you think there's any tr truth in what they were trying to do? You were there. You were on the front lines. Well, I think certainly from their perspective, there was truth. I don't think that among the folks who actually attacked the Capitol, uh, 
I, I don't believe that many of them were cynically motivated uh, in the way that some of um, the people they were listening to were probably were. Um, on the contrary, I think that the, they were all um, incredibly uh, sincere in their beliefs um, and in their conviction that they were uh, protecting the Republic. And it's, it's really um, that uh, sincerity that is most troubling because uh, they be truly believed it then. And I think most of them uh, truly believe it uh, today. Tell me about this book, Luke. It's not just about January 6th. Uh, the book climaxes, if that's the right word, with January 6th. But you came back as a foreign correspondent. You did the, uh, the inversion of the traditional journalistic narrative. Uh, in early May, uh, you left Paris. You're no longer in Paris. You're in Marseille, but still in France. Uh, you'd been based there covering strife and pestilence, at least according to The Guardian around the world. And you went home to report on the, again, I'm quoting from Julian Borger in The uh, Guardian, on the accelerated unraveling of the United States. Was the United States or is the United States becoming like the kind of world, uh, Luke, that you report on in Iraq and Afghanistan? No, it's it's a far cry from those places, and uh, and for what it's worth, uh, it, you can't really group um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria together either. I mean, each is 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 unique and um, only resemble uh, one another, uh, I guess, in relation to uh, how foreign they seem to most uh, Americans or, or Westerners, uh, but. At the time when I went to the U.S. to start reporting on these militias that were mobilizing around um, uh, or I should say against uh, lockdown and uh, public health policies early in the pandemic, I really didn't know uh, where it was going to lead. Um, and I certainly didn't anticipate something like January 6th uh, being an ultimate result of of this initial kind of fervor that was developing uh, in the spring of 2020. Luke, you grew up in St. Louis. You went to Bennington College, an exclusive liberal arts school. Uh, when did you actually leave America to report on the rest of the world? Uh, in 2011, I moved to Afghanistan. I moved to Kabul and I ended up staying there, uh, living there full-time for uh, three years. So you've been out of the country, or you were out of the country almost 10 years. In your mind, the America of 2011, the one you left, how different was it or is it to the, the America of 2021-2022? Uh, incredibly different. Well, first of all, you know, I, I was actually living in, in Bedside, Brooklyn, when uh, Obama was elected in, in 2008. And I went to D.C. Uh, for his inauguration. Um, and so it's, you know, that is kind of the America that uh, 
I left when I when I moved uh, to Afghanistan. So obviously, it's it's quite different now. Um, just the the kind of uh, hopefulness and and uh, and energy that you had at least on the left, um, you know, has basically completely disappeared now. Um, and also it was, uh, despite, you know, the, the, the beginnings of, uh, these movements, uh, these kind of reactionary movements that emerged at the beginning of the Obama administration, like the tea party, the Patriot militias, uh, the oath keepers, um, it was, it was still, uh, I'd say much less partisan. I had been in the national guard for the preceding three years um, between, I guess, 2008 and early 11. Um, and I don't remember uh, ever talking politics with any of the, any of my platoon mates, um, either in basic training or in my medic training or uh, when I was with my unit in, uh, in New York. And it's kind of hard to imagine that uh, being the case now. Uh, I'm intrigued the fact that you, you grew up in uh, St. Louis. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the St. Louis-based writer, Sarah Kenzie. She's been on the show before, actually, a couple of times. And she's coming back on later this week. So I'll have two, two people from St. Louis on the show. Okay. The I should just interject here that I, I didn't grow up in St. Louis. I was born in St. Louis. but Oh, okay. So where did yeah. you grow up? I apologize. No worries. Uh, mostly in Northern California, and then I graduated high school in Southern Idaho. Okay, so what kind of upbringing did you have? Uh, well, I when I <laughs> I grew up mostly with uh, my mother in Northern California. Who? Where about? I'm in Northern California. Where very, about? Uh, Sonoma. Oh, lovely. Whereabouts in Sonoma? Kind of in between Glen Ellen and Sonoma the town oh that's perfect so were you living um were you uh rural i mean there's a lot of yeah vineyards there yeah yeah and what was your so mother very, doing uh she is a potter and so you were living a, a sort of alternative existence it's a very it's a very rarefied a lovely part of the world i've lived there with my family as well uh, yeah, I don't know. Glen Ellen is one of the nicest towns in the, not only in America, but in the world. It, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's beautiful out there. Uh, it was really different when I was growing so, up. So you there lived a kind what, of, a, uh, maybe an alternative itinerant lifestyle growing up. I don't know if I'd say that. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, my mom was, a was, was, and is, uh, a Democrat and, um, you know, very, had very liberal and progressive uh, views, uh, political views. And then I subsequently uh, went to live with, with my dad, my father in, in Idaho, and he's uh, kind of on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Uh, very Republican, conservative. Um, wow. What was that like for you? It was interesting. I mean, it's interesting to have, both those perspectives, not only in my own family, but also, you know, just culturally Northern California and Southern Idaho kind of are as far apart as, as you can get in the U S. 
So the America that you knew was a, a kind of a bipolar America, an America of, of Sonoma County, of Potters and of liberals, and then of, of, of Idaho, very, very conservative. Do you think that that's changed again? It doesn't seem to have changed that much. It's just become more, more reported on in many ways. I don't know. I feel like I kind of was able to witness um, the increasing uh, partisan rancor and hostility among Americans who uh, belong to different parties. Uh, I, I kind of watched that trajectory um, because, you know, and it really happened, started to happen um, during the Clinton administration uh, with Newt Gingrich and um, this kind We've of done that show. Uh, everybody blames Newt Gingrich, um, except those who blame Richard Nixon, uh, except those who blame Ronald Reagan. And, and the reality is that um, this has been going on a, a long while, hasn't it? I mean, Rich, Richard Hofstetter in 1964 wrote a wonderful essay, uh, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And he talks about 19, not just 1951, McCarthyism, but 1855 and 1895. My, my confusion is, is what's really changed? America and politics has always been paranoid. It's as paranoid in 2022 as it was in 1922 and probably 1822. Yeah, it's a fair point. And yeah, when you read that article, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, it's you could be reading about, you know, today, uh, it's really remarkable. Uh, it's, it's uncanny how some of those, uh, some of his insights resonate today. Um, yeah, you might be right. Um, I Does suppose... that make it more, I mean, I'm not saying it's not worrying, but do you think it makes it more or less worrying that this has existed so long? It seems to be some, I mean, some people might use the idea of a cancer, an illness in the American psyche or in well, I guess in the, the diff I think that the difference though what I was going to say is I suppose that the difference between you know the the America that uh Richard Hofstadter was writing about in 1964 and today is that you know he was writing about Barry Goldwater and this kind of revolution within the Republican Party that ultimately failed um and and I think you did have you know for most of the modern history of the Republican Party, uh, a, a, a party machinery, um, you know, dominated by mainstream uh, leaders who were able to kind of keep in check their radical flank um, and even disavow uh, them when necessary. Um, and Obviously, there were always tacit alliances with those folks, even with, you know, out and out white supremacists during the Nixon and Reagan administrations. But there was still uh, there was still a kind of a, a, a party, uh, a core party uh, hierarchy and machinery that, you know, was able to keep things somewhat on the rails. Whereas, you know, now we're in a situation where if 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 Barry Goldwater uh, ran today for president, you know, he'd probably, he'd certainly get the nomination and, and would probably, you know, get elected thanks to the electoral college. So what's your point? 
my point is, is that the the that there has been uh, that that's the difference between now and then um, that you have now a kind of open embrace or at least acquiescence among mainstream Republicans to the radical flank within their party. And it's really that those those uh, extremists who are driving um, the direction of of the Republican Party. Look, you had an interesting uh, interview in Lit Hub, which is where the, uh, this show also resides on. Uh, and the headline was on the far right, the militia movement and the threat of Trumpism. You suggest in the interview, and, I, and I've seen it in some other stuff, and you, you note it in the book, that there is a difference between um, radicals in America and the kind of radicals that you've covered overseas associated with rationality. Do you want to say something about that? Particularly associated with their rationality or their grasp of reality, perhaps. Right. Maybe I'm I'm using the wrong words. Maybe you can. Well, I wouldn't. Me. I wouldn't say that the common denominator is is uh, a, a kind of rationality. It's it's more for me the 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 most obvious uh, parallel uh, between right-wing extremists and Islamic extremists, for example, is their religious fervor and their religious fundamentalism and the way in which um, their value system, which, uh, which prioritizes a religious, a religious worldview over, you know, uh, respect for democratic principles, uh, changes the way in which they interact with uh, with government, but also with their political adversaries. Um, because once you've kind of framed your uh, political engagement and activity within um, a religious, eternal, cosmic um, uh, worldview, there's really... Uh, you have you have no incentive to compromise and no reason to compromise, and maybe that's the rationale you're referring to, because it actually, you know, from their perspective, it wouldn't make sense or or be logical to um, come to some kind of uh, agreement or meet halfway uh, an an opponent who you essentially equate with. Um, evil Satan um, and, 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 a, and a more and, and a kind of pernicious force that supersedes, you know, the, 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 the project of, of American democracy. So this seems to me to uh, look to be two readings of the January 6th crowd. On the one hand, they're the forgotten Americans, uh, the Americans of, ex-Main Street, who, who can't work, who don't work, who've been forgotten by the elites of the coasts. You know, you lived in Northern California and Washington, D.C., New York City, Brooklyn, where you used to live. And on the other hand, um, and that's a more sympathetic reading, the other reading is the one you just presented, is that they've, they're essentially delusional. And they've been deluded, particularly by this um, revivalist, absurd 
Christianity. Are you fitting them into this second narrative or am I oversimplifying? Am I fitting? January 6th, the, the far right crowd in. I mean, do you have any, let me, let me put the question slightly differently. Do you have any sympathy with these people? We, we did a show with, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with the book. In some ways, it's kind of like yours. Uh, it's in the same genre, Liars Circus, um, uh, Carl Hoffman. Uh, he embedded himself in the Trump movement as Trump was getting elected. Um, and he had a certain, I mean, even if he was quite concerned like you, he also had a certain sympathy with these people. He thought individually they were extremely nice. You seem to have no, of course. the same ambivalent. Of course, yeah. And when you spend time with these people, they're incredibly polite. And I mean, I, I everybody, well, not everybody, but most people were, um, you know, exceedingly welcoming and, and, and friendly to me. Um, and like I said, I have Trump supporters in my own family and I love them and respect them. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, um, you know, the ideas that they're promoting and espousing and that in the actions that they're taking are um, harmful to other Americans and in particular uh, uh, already vulnerable and persecuted and historically persecuted Americans. I think that a lot of these ideas and actions um, are the result of a very well-organized, very well-funded um, propaganda machine. And, um, you know, a lot of these conspiracy theories, they don't materialize out of thin air. They're deliberately crafted by um, people with incredible resources at their disposal um, and, and who subsequently profit off of off of these theories. Um, so, you know, uh, I d absolutely um, sympathize with people who have been inundated and targeted, inundated with and targeted by uh, this, this really historic um, uh, effort of, of propaganda. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they're adults with agency. And if they choose to uh, take to the street and uh, prop or take to Facebook uh, and propagate these ideas, um, I think that it's almost equally condescending to, um, to give them a pass and to not hold them accountable. How high does the responsibility go in terms of media? One of the questions on LitHub uh, was, how do you, from LitHub, they, they asked the question, how do we combat a well-funded, integrated media network that provides conspiracy as entertainment to millions of Americans? And you, 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 you replied, I wish I knew. I'm not sure what the question was really about, whether they would include the New York Times and, and other progressive newspapers. I mean, obviously, they're thinking of Fox um how extensive in your mind is this media conspiracy to mislead people uh, particularly on the right uh loop how high uh, up does it go i mean i don't know if i would Murdoch in part be responsible for this with his ownership of fox yeah i mean there, there are people more qualified than i to um to but talk you did about just this. talk about these people being 
sort of hoodwinked by media. So what are they watching yeah. when you when you spoke to them? When you well, it's yeah, it's not just media. I mean, Alex Jones, for example. Yeah, uh, I mean, no one's of... going to defend Alex Jones, but uh, beyond yeah. that, I mean, the guy's or, probably going to go oh, to jail. Yeah. yeah, Newsmax, OAN. You know, it's interesting. On um, on November seventh, I was at the Pennsylvania State Capitol in Harrisburg, and um, that was the day that Fox called uh, Arizona and subsequently the the uh, the election for uh, Biden. And people, the Repub a lot of the Republicans that had gathered at the Capitol uh, in Harrisburg that day were lifelong or if not lifelong, longtime uh, Fox watchers. And uh, I went on to, you know, spend more, spend time with some of the folks I met that day and run into them at subsequent uh, Stop the Steal and, and Trump rallies in D.C. And they had all switched uh, to, to Newsmax. And, you know, Newsmax and OAN, they, they really were just... Uh, uh, propaganda arms of the Trump Trump campaign uh, throughout 2020. So that's sorry. sorry go on. But I don't know if I would call any of that a conspiracy. I, you know, uh, it's it's just um, uh, politicized media um, pushing a narrative and knowing it's a narrative knowing, that in your mind is. Yeah, I mean, they've admitted yeah, Newsmax. Yeah, New, I mean, Newsmax had to, you know, uh, because of lawsuits, um, had to uh, had to go on the record on their own channel and apologize for uh, uh, repeating Trump's lies about Dominion and Smartmatic. So, you know, they knew what they were doing, and now uh, it's it's clearer than ever because of some of the testimony at the January six hearings that. A lot of these people, you know, never believed uh, that the election was stolen. So it, on, on their part, it was incredibly cynical and they were knowingly lying. But uh, that wasn't the case with the pe their audiences. I mean, their audiences who were uh, receiving these, these lies um, genuinely believed them. So I think it's important to distinguish be between the two. But they believed it. Why? Because they were stupid or they wanted to believe it or they were ill-informed. I, I, I think what's curious to me is that these books about conspiracy theory often are founded on one kind of conspiracy or another. So you're suggesting that uh -huh. much of this itself was a conspiracy by well, you know, well-funded people. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about these uh, conspiracy theories is that even if they're not uh, explicitly or literally uh, linked together or, 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 or self-referring, um, they, they kind of uh, all, uh, they all contribute to an overall worldview, you know, that the Democrats are evil, that uh, Republicans are uh, the true defenders of the constitution, that liberals are amoral, um, and that they cheat. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it's a lot of these theories are colored by anti-Semitism and, and racism as well. Um, so, 
the re one result of that is um, if you've already bought into that kind of general worldview and maybe you've bought into it just piecemeal, like since the nineties, um, little by little listening to talk radio, um, it becomes ever more difficult to reject any part of it or any new conspiracy theory that arises that seems to confirm or validate um, preceding ones that you've already accepted as true. Because once you reject one, it's kind of like taking a, a Jenga piece out of the tower, you know? It undermines the legitimacy of, of, of an entire uh, worldview. And that's, you know, it's a lot to ask of people to do that. I think it's very difficult uh, for, for people to acknowledge that um, perhaps many, many things that they've, uh, that they've accepted uh, are in fact untrue. Well, you, you embedded yourself, Luke, um, with the radical right, January 6th and, and other events, particularly in Michigan, um, leading up to it. Did you have these kind of conversations? Did the people know who you were or were you just an anonymous activist who was involved on their side? Uh, no, I mean, I'm not an activist. Well, um, I don't mean an act. I mean, a, a sort of a, a, a fake participant in their movement. No, no, no. I never lied to anybody. Um, I, you know, when I talk to people, I would always introduce myself as a journalist on assignment for the New Yorker magazine. However, um, uh, one caveat to that is when I was following mobs, violent mobs around, uh, particularly at night in DC, uh, on November 14th, December 12th, and then on January 6th, um, I wasn't going around, you know, tapping people on the shoulder, uh, alerting them that I, that I was a journalist. I was just, <laughs> I was just filming them. You know, I was filming these uh, criminal activities with my phone, um, but I wasn't lying to anybody either. I mean, if anybody asked me, I would tell them I was a journalist, um, but nobody did, you know, because at a lot of these events too, uh, there, there's so many live streamers and right-wing bloggers and, people with um with iphones filming everything anyway uh it's, it's pretty easy to just kind of blend in um and document what's happening uh with your phone and that's that's what i did and that's what i did on january 6 as well i just kind of followed people around and and nobody you know nobody noticed me or or uh challenged me i don't know there was a famous short story some famous i can't remember the name of the author who rewrote the the Jesus crucifixion and suggested that everyone there was reporting on it. Maybe half the people involved in January 6th with their phones were like you, how in all seriousness, of course they weren't. And, and what you did required a, a great deal of bravery. I don't mean to minimize it. Well, no, it's a good point. And actually, you know, the kind of um, performative quality of the insurrection was really striking to me. You know, I really had the sense that um, these, uh, people were kind of uh, acting uh, for each right. other and also for themselves. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, the, inaug the inaugural platform is where most of the uh, violence took place, the worst violence um, between the mob and the police that were protecting that tunnel 
Um, I'm sure you you and your listeners have, have seen images and, and footage of uh, of those clashes. Yeah. Um, it's where, you know, Fanon, Officer Fanon was dragged out and beaten unconscious. Um, it's where um, uh, Roseanne Boylan, a Trump supporter, was trampled to death. Um, and that's that was a literal stage. It's a stage that was constructed to put on a show uh, for the country. Um, and there was even a, what's called a center stand that had, that had been put up uh, at, the, at the front end of the stage for the press for, uh, for, for January 20th so that TV crews could have a kind of bird's eye view of mm. uh, Biden swearing in. And on that day, you had uh, photojournalists up there documenting uh, the violence on the platform, but also uh, rioters and Trump supporters were climbing up there with their phones to try to uh, capture this, uh, a more kind of cinematic and striking image for, I guess, for their Facebook pages. Um, so, so, you know, there was this uh, eerie kind of surreal dynamic in which um, a lot of the rioters were were kind of observers and participants. Yeah, that performance quality. I, I, I mean, I think they're um, they're they're mimicking Donald Trump, who of course is himself part of that. You know, we've done lots of shows on the Donald Trump show. We did one. You know, the idea of this whole thing being a big spectacle, a Trumpian spectacle of television. Uh, just as there was a Truman show, now there's a Trump show. We did a show with John Carl, front row at the Trump uh, show. I mean, it, 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 to end, uh, Luke, uh, or I, I had a couple more questions, but to end on January 6th, um, I mean, how dangerous do you think this moment was? If, there were, if, if a lot of the participants were performing with their iPhones and their, probably their Android phones, putting it up on on uh, uh, putting it up on Facebook, and if most of the violence was was outside that, do you really think that the American Republic was in danger on January sixth? Um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Did that, you've seen the January sixth hearings? I've seen, uh, yeah, but 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 I'm asking you. <laughs> I mean, I'm not asking uh, the, yeah. the senator. Well, I think at this but you point, were there, you know, Luke. I mean, so that's yeah. why I'm asking. You. Well, yeah, but the mob, the mob violence was one part of this, right? So, I mean, you had, you had, you had the president, acting, sitting president of the United States, doing everything he possibly could uh, to carry out a coup and to hold on to power and to prevent, you know, the will of the people from being enacted. Um, and and the mob was one part of that. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't believe that the mob itself uh, isolated from those other efforts, um, those other legal and, and congressional efforts could have, you know, um, could have done any lasting damage to or, or, or single handedly kept. Trump in power. Um, I think they definitely would have harmed and maybe killed lawmakers if they had gotten their hands on them. And it was just, you know, by luck that uh, they didn't. Um, but I also think that 
you know, one, uh, one of the most troubling aspects of, of that day was how emboldening it ended up being for not only for the people who were there, but for, you know, a lot of the Trump supporters watching it. Um, I mean, Trump has explicitly endorsed their actions. And I, I think that among, you know, far right extremists, I know that among far right extremists who are, you know, determined to, um, determined to uh, prevent Democrats or any of their, or for that matter, uh, Republicans whom they disagree with from ever um, taking office or winning elections. Um, uh, for them, it was incredibly electrifying uh, and, and emboldening. And I think, you know, we were just at the beginning of a, of a new chapter that January 6th has made possible. Um, the, at the end of the day, you know, after the, after the, uh, the building had been secured, all of the rioters had been expelled, um, the Metropolitan Police and Capitol Police and National Guard had more or less um, uh, created a, a perimeter around the around the building um a lot of the rioters kind of sh shifted their attention to some of the tv crews and and journalists um who had set up in a in a nearby grassy area and you know they they chased them off assaulted them smashed their cameras and then piled up all of their gear uh and into a kind of ceremonial pyre and which they tried to light on fire but weren't able to um, but then they all gathered around and 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 uh, and started giving speeches and talking about how they were now at war and they were going to hang the traitors. And um, I'll just never forget the the, the intensity of the energy um, uh, at that scene. And you could just feel that um, for them, you know, the day had had been it wasn't at all uh, a defeat it was um it was uh a kind of realization of their power um and and uh and and uh, an encouragement to start wielding it um more openly a couple of very quick questions luke i apologize for this going on a little long um you as we suggested earlier you, you came back from uh, your reporting of overseas American wars mostly, although Syria, of course, is not an American war, but certainly Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, to what extent, and you talked about, you know, words like defeat and war being used on January 6th. A lot of the people, or some of the people at least, on the ground are ex-military, ex-police. To what extent can all this be made sense of in terms of the various catastrophes of American foreign policy since 9-11. We did a show with Elliot Ackerman, a former Marine. Um, he has a new book out, The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. Um, we did also lots of shows about Iraq, Robert Draper, for example, another prominent journalist about why Iraq matters so much. Can January 6th be thought of as the sixth or the seventh act? Is it the squaring of the circle in terms of American foreign and domestic policy, the return of violence to American politics? 
Or is that um, wrong? No, I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I, I, I definitely wouldn't link it to um, 9-11 the way that that article you cited at the beginning of this conversation did. I mean, first of all, because I wouldn't. Well, that was Warner. So uh, it's, it's, that was Mark Warner, who um, is the Democratic uh, chairman of the Senate's intelligence. Uh, uh -huh. Yeah. So I mean, it, it wasn't the. Yeah. Like, I, you that. know, I wouldn't call the World Trade Center a symbol of democracy either. And I think that, you know, the, the two events are just incredibly uh, different for all kinds of other reasons as well. But, um, but I, but it's true that within this militarized far right uh, movement, uh, veterans play veterans of the global war on terrorism play an outsized role. Um, that's they're, they're within the overall veteran community. They're definitely a minority, but um, but those veterans who um, have uh, been galvanized by. Uh, by Trump and Trumpism uh, are very influential within that movement. Um, and then groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenter uh, militias. And I think that one reason is that they are, uh, they, they've seized on this opportunity to, um, to reclaim or preserve uh, their identity as soldiers and protectors of democracy and uh, citizens willing to fight, kill, and die uh, for their country. And unfortunately, you know, you have a lot of groups, um, chief among them the Oath Keepers, who explicitly tell them that, you know, engaging in this struggle that they're obliged to engage in this struggle because of the oath that they took uh, when uh, they they uh, became soldiers um, or law enforcement members for that for that reason um, to protect the country against all enemies, foreign and domestic, with a stress on uh, the last two uh, the last two words. So let's end on a particularly depressing note, the threat of civil war in America. You've talked about the Oath Keepers um, in your LitHub uh, interview. Um, there was a question about civil war in America. It's one that we've addressed in a number of different ways. Do you think that um, there is a likelihood that between now and 2045, when America will become a minority white country, that there will be a civil war in America, particularly fueled by race or at least uh, a sense of race uh, particularly on the part of these white oath keeper groups who seem to be driven by uh, lots of resentment about racial identity and the changing culture and mm -hmm. demographic in america i really don't know i really have no idea but i do know that there are elements out there who want that and are working for that and are doing everything they can uh, to, to help bring that about. And so, you know, I think we need to, uh, we need to be very clear-eyed about the threat that those groups and individuals pose and not, you know, uh, stick our heads in the sand um, in the face of this, of this threat. Um, so, 
So yeah, whether or not they succeed is an open question and it'll depend in large part um, on how we as a country respond uh, now and in, in, yeah, in, in the immediate future.